Hello, everyone. This is Jeffrey Rainey, producer of the Living Blind Podcast. On behalf of the entire team here at Balance, I would like to personally thank each and every one of you for listening to our show. Whether you've been listening for a long time or just tuning in for the first time, welcome. And that's why we want to hear from you. Do you have lived experience with blindness or partial sight? Do you have an interesting personal or professional story to tell? Do you want to share your experiences with a worldwide listening audience of people with vision loss? Do you participate in work, leisure, sports, volunteer, or everyday living activities using adaptations that would be helpful for others to know about? We are currently seeking guests for Season 3 of Living Blind. If you are interested in being interviewed, have a topic you would like us to cover, or a person you would like us to interview, please send your ideas and expressions of interest to livingblindpodcast at balancefba.org. Welcome to Living Blind. I'm your host, Naomi Hazlitt, and this podcast is brought to you by Balance for Blind Adults, located in Toronto, Canada. This season of Living Blind is sponsored by AMI. Here at Living Blind, we explore the perspectives and lived experiences of people with sight loss and delve into barriers, challenges, and real-life strategies for living life to the fullest. My guest for this episode is Mr. Blair Spry. Blair is an educator, opera singer, and fashion model who grew up in Waterloo, Ontario. He attained a Bachelor's of Music degree from Wilfrid Laurier University and went on to receive a Bachelor of Education in 2018. As a singer, he has performed with the National Youth Choir of Canada, as well as with the Nota Bene Baroque Players. He has also starred in leading roles in Opera Laurier's productions of Igor Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress and Puccini's Gianni Schicchi. As a teacher, Blair has worked with students in the Waterloo and Grand Erie District school boards from grades 1 through 12. Now living in Brantford, Ontario, he currently serves as an educator and student support counsellor at the W. Ross MacDonald School for the Blind. Blair takes us on a journey through his young but colourful life, elaborates on the challenges he was confronted with as a low vision student in the performing arts, and how his love for teaching has led him to his current job working with blind and low vision children, just as so many have done for him. We also talk a little Mozart, because why not? Welcome to the show, Blair. Thank you for having me. So I know that you work with students yourself, but I'd like to start by going back in time a little bit and talking about your own education. So can you tell me about where you went to school and what your path was to getting the degree that you have now? And so my path probably started seriously in about the seventh or eighth grade. I went to public school all the way through. And when I went to public school in the Waterloo region, there were a lot of sports where for liability reasons, despite mine and my family's best efforts at advocacy at that time, um, I wasn't able to play. And so naturally, I developed a passion for the arts because the arts, music, drama, dance, are always open kind of to everybody, and there's a low liability risk factor on behalf of school boards to allow students who are blind or visually impaired into those areas. And for my grade 9 year, 
I decided to audition for Eastwood Collegiate Institute in Waterloo and ended up attending school there all the way through till grade 12. Now, Eastwood is a school for music and instrumental music, vocal music, and drama. And I absolutely thrived there. Really grew a passion for singing in choirs and singing solo. Connected with a private singing teacher and decided that I wanted to go to university for music. So ended up going to Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo. And I got my bachelor's of music degree there in voice performance. That's where I discovered kind of my love for opera and ended up also discovering my love for teaching there because it was always the teachers, not so much the performers that inspired me when I went through. So I got my bachelor's of education with the hope that one day I would provide similar inspiration both within and beyond my community. And here I am now. That's great. So on the one hand, you may not have been encouraged to follow your original passion, which was sports, but kind of found something different along the way. Yeah. We adapt and we grow, and that's what I was kind of aiming for. So do you have a favorite? I know you said that opera is something that you really enjoy. Do you have a favorite composer or piece of music that you like? I really like Mozart. And in particular, I really like the magic flute. It's always been my dream to sing the role of Tamino, which is the main tenor character in the magic flute. Um, my favorite piece of music is probably an opera aria from that, which in German is called Die Spielfnis ist schön, which in English translates to something like this image is strikingly beautiful. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I'm familiar with the, what is it? The Night Queen's Aria. The Queen I think of the that's night, the yeah. one, the Queen of the Night that most people know, but I definitely have to check that one out because um, it's been a little while since I listened to the Magic Flute. I guess one thing I'm wondering, because the show is about people's experiences, but also just kind of getting a sense of what challenges or creative solutions there were along the way when you went through both your music and teaching programs were there any barriers were there any things that you had to adapt to uh, along your educational journey and so i would say that the first real one that i hit like i said was around the seventh or eighth grade i actually was at one point in my life, a very skilled downhill skier. Um, so much so that the blind and visually impaired Team Ontario for the Paralympics wanted to recruit me. Um, and when I went into grade seven and eight in public middle school, they said that even with a guide, I couldn't ski downhill because it was just too unsafe to have like a blind person on the slopes. And what I did with that is I kind of took that and started actively doing some research of my own. And I found an organization called Track 3, which operates out of several different ski clubs in Ontario. And through them, I was able to find a guide and get my weekly skiing in outside of school. 
and they had a lot of specific expertise related to skiing, where they could offer me a guide and let me have that experience and continue to grow my craft there. Um, and the second big challenge that I hit was when I was in university, in terms of actually being an actor and a singer at the same time while performing operas. It's not enough in the 20th century, 21st century even, to just stand on stage and sing. And even though vocally I had a lot of talent, I found that my body language, there were big gaps in it that made me look weird kind of as an actor on stage. And so the way I kind of got around that is I met a few very good friends during my time in opera school, and I would have them coach me on how to look, how to act, what I needed to do to pull it off convincingly. Because often the directors themselves would be so wrapped up in the music or in other aspects of the production that otherwise I would have kind of been overlooked. Mm-hmm. So there's the sports side, which I'm happy to hear that you sustain, despite, you know, people telling you that that's something that you can't do, as well as the opera piece. I kind of want to start with talking about sports, although, you know, I know you have a lot to talk about with music, because what struck me with your story is that, you know, I assume, or tell me if I'm wrong, but you went to a a sighted or integrated school. Is that yes. right? So this might be a good jumping off point to talk about um, W. Ross McDonald. Do students there play sports? Uh, do you, does the school facilitate them in terms of pursuing their passions? Or I guess what I'm trying to say is, is, is there anything that you have to tell students that they're not able to do, or are there creative ways to make it work? Um, at W. Ross, we have a motto for the school, and that motto is that the impossible is only the untried. And so I would say that, yes, students are allowed to pursue anything that excites them and anything that they need in order to grow. We have independent living skills instructors who specifically work with them on things like cooking or sewing or even for some of our younger students, the little things like tying their shoes. There's a curriculum built around each student's individual needs and then they pursue those goals as they age through the school. We have an orientation and mobility program and there's I think between six and eight really fantastic instructors who work on street crossing and traveling safely in the snow and finding your way around a city independently. And as students age, they can even earn O&M passes to go out and explore the community around them. And then a lot of what we do in our lodging program, too, aims to provide meaningful opportunities in the realms of sporting and music and drama to our students. We offer... We're the only school in Canada that offers a comprehensive goalball training program. We also offer the sports you'd find in an integrated school with adaptations. So we have our students even playing like basketball, but a support counselor will go behind the net and hit the board 
with a hockey stick or something so that the student can hear where they're aiming the ball before they shoot. And we even have a full gym upstairs in our in our athletic facility. So students can learn how to lift weights, run, and all those gross motor skills that they need to live healthy and active lives as well. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me that, you know, having experienced an integrated school in your own education and now being a support counselor at a school for visually impaired people or students, sounds like the biggest difference is is the way in which the school supports students in essentially doing whatever they want. It sounds like it doesn't take too much either, you know, if rather it's just banging a hockey stick on the back of the board uh, during a basketball game. We're always looking to make as many adaptations as we can to ensure that students lead meaningful lives both at the school and after they graduate too. So. I know you talked a little bit about things like tying shoes, and I know that independent living skills is a subject that you have an interest in. So can you tell me a little bit more about, aside from navigation, like you touched on with the orientation and mobility, what sorts of other skills do students have the opportunity to learn at the school? And so, now, often when someone has vision, there are things that they pick up on and are able to replicate how to do without really even having to think about it. For visually impaired people, at least I'll speak for myself, I've noticed that there are some skills that you really have to isolate the steps and break down and then eventually put the pieces back together to achieve success in that area. And so some skills that our students are learning at the moment might be things like how to cook meals for themselves. Um, another one that they use a lot is money management. So looking at what the different coins feel like and how they can in a non-visual way tell how much money they're getting out of their wallet and reading the braille on bills, things like that. And also there are interpersonal elements that we work on a lot too. And so, for example, if you're having a conversation as a sighted person, and the person you're talking to seems really busy, or they're looking down at their phone the whole time, they may not necessarily want to or be av available to talk to you in that moment. And if you can't see, you may not realize those subtle details that are going on. And so we kind of sit down with students and we'll talk through those social cues and those blanks that can be filled in so that they can look for other cues. Is it their intonation? Is it the way someone even like breathes that tells you what they're thinking socially? Um we sit down and we talk about how to interpret the world around us without the ability to see or replicate body language. Do you feel like, given that sighted people pick up on those cues a little more naturally, at least, or at least some sighted people, do you feel that isolation or making connections 
can be a challenge for visually impaired students and adults? I think so, yes. I think that it's not the be-all, end-all. I think anyone on this earth can learn enough fluency and social skills to make connections if it's something they're willing to work out. But I think that it's important, especially within our community, to lay down the scaffolding to make those connections successfully, um, at least if that's what the student is open to. Mm -hmm. And now a message from our sponsor. Discover AMI's collection of podcasts created by and for the blind and partially sighted community. Visit ami.ca to learn more. AMI entertains, informs, and empowers. And now, back to the podcast. You know, we've been talking a lot about defying stereotypes. Are there any other sorts of preconceptions or myths that you you want to bust when it comes to being a visually impaired person? Um, I think that I'm trying to find the best way to word this. I think that the biggest stereotype that's held about blind and visually impaired people is the idea that sighted people have to do everything for them in order for them to be successful. And what it unfortunately leads to is this feeling of being written off. So sighted people will kind of tiptoe around and be like, oh, well, let's serve the meat on this plate pre-cut because they'll never be able to do that. Or, oh, we better not let them use any of those power tools because that could be really dangerous. Because it's easier to make the assumption that a person can't do those things than it is to sit down and work with them and to achieve their goals. And so I think that in order to really appreciate and understand and equalize the community, um, it's very important to not assume people can't do things. And also, if it turns out that they can't, to try and help them accomplish their goals so that they can feel valued and successful, rather than just writing them off as, oh, that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you try to do in your role as a student support counselor? All the time, every day. Can you tell me a little bit more? I don't know if you have any stories to share about how you've been able to guide students through that process or through that difficulty. I worked with a junior student several years ago now, who had never, well, they had used a fork and they had used a spoon, but their parents had never let them use a knife while they were eating before. And I think that's common up to like a certain age, but this student was in the fourth or fifth grade, and meals were coming up that weren't quite cut into pieces like they usually are. And so... I asked the student, well, do you know how to cut this? And they admitted to me, no, they hadn't done that before. And so I was able to just hand over hand and take them through that process and 
how to do it safely using your fork to anchor down the food while you cut with your other hand. And they were amazed by that because they never thought that was something, even something that small, they never thought it was something that they would be able to do. Yet here they were beating the odds. I found that to be a really rewarding experience teaching them that. Wow. It's almost like when it comes to achieving dreams or achieving independence, it's just so different for every person what that means to them. It can be about cutting a piece of food for the first time, or it can be, you know, singing in an opera. But it sounds like the biggest message is about keeping an open mind to what a person wants to do and really working with them to try to achieve it to the best of everyone's abilities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a, a great story. Um, and it speaks to that connection, right? That full circle that I think we were kind of getting at before where you've had experiences in the educational system the integrated educational system, and now you're coming to W. Ross McDonald, and I suppose you're trying to assist students in ways that maybe you were not supported. Is there anything else you want to touch on in, in terms of that topic? I think what I'd like to say as well is that even though I've talked a lot about the things that weren't really done for me, um, even in the time it took me to get from that horror story in the 7th and 8th grade to my experience in the 12th grade. Um, when I was in the 12th grade, I had a fantastic vision teacher. She basically taught me the grade 12 um, advanced functions math curriculum. I want to say it's just, it's gotten better and the situation is improving. This isn't meant to shoot down any kind of institution or public board or anything like that. We're getting better. We're not all the way there yet. And I think that my message is that there's always room for improvement in how we provide an inclusive community to our learners. Can you tell folks a little bit more about the vision teacher role? Is it just supporting with the curriculum? Are there any other things vision teachers do when they support students in integrated schools? And so a vision teacher, or as they're formerly called TVI, teacher of the visually impaired, um, is someone who has gone to a teacher's college, just like anyone who would stand at the front of a classroom. And they have decided to specialize in making the world and the curriculum accessible for people who are blind. Um, they have extensive training in Braille, so if a student needs that as their reading medium, they can prepare it in that manner for them. Um, they also work with school boards to provide equipment such as blackboard cameras so that everyone who has a bit of vision can see the board. And they work on things even sometimes like living skills or helping a student to apply to post-secondary education. Um, their main role, though, is to adapt the curriculum 
in a way that students can access, whether that's through large print or digital handouts, braille, and the student ultimately works with them to decide how they're best going to access it, what accommodations are needed for them to be successful. And in my case, I was very lucky because my vision teacher also taught me elements of the curriculum where there were gaps that she noticed. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned all the technology or different ways of accessing the curriculum, such as Braille. I can only assume you have all of those options at uh, W. Ross McDonald. Absolutely. Um, if, if someone is in a school board where that technology is not available to them, W. Ross is an excellent hub to go to to get that training as well. Does the school in that case support other schools in terms of accessing the curriculum? Like, does, does W. Ross they do, McDonald yes. help out in that way? Oh, okay. They have resource consultants who regularly go out into the community, and those people would talk to public boards about adaptations and technology and other elements that can be adapted for student success. That's great to know, for sure. Okay, wow, we've really covered some ground here from your journey through, you know, the public school system, through to university, getting a music degree and a teaching degree, and then your current role in terms of supporting students. I guess I'm thinking, you know, say there are students listening to this podcast right now, whether it was students in an integrated school or maybe even students who are attending W. Ross McDonald or another school in the world that's for the blind or visually impaired. What advice would you have for them? I think the biggest piece of advice I would have is to really build up your self-awareness in what you are comfortable doing and what you want to achieve because it gets very challenging sometimes when you're written off by sighted people instead of seeing that as an attack see that as a challenge to prove them wrong um there have been many times in my life where i myself have been written off and i didn't do the right thing i kind of either gave up or walked away and as an older adult now i realized that if i had taken that as a wake-up call and a hey let's make this happen to defy the statistics i would have been a lot happier and so see that as a challenge see that as an opportunity to grow and to improve and to really defy any of the stereotypes that are set out there for you there is hope, and when you find the right people to connect with who can provide the support you need, it can take you as far as you wish to go. Well said. Thank you. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to talk about on the show? Um, I think that another element that might be worth talking about is looking at community resources hmm. to help 
integrate socially and in terms of student interests when they're out in the community. So can you tell me a little bit about, I know we talked about inside the school, but you also, I think it's also important to mention that people graduate and move on in terms of what they want to do. So either for yourself or the school, what sorts of resources are students connected with as they either transition to the community or live in the community while attending school? So one organization that I'd really like to plug is for those students who are blind and visually impaired and have an interest in the arts. I run a camp during the summer called MCVI, which stands for Music Camp for the Visually Impaired. And it's a really great program where you get to learn a bit of music braille. There, when we meet in person, are a lot of great recreational activities, swimming, outdoor time, games, etc., just like a normal summer camp. And the best part is you get to learn and you get lessons on your instrument or voice, which culminates in a final performance at the end of the week. Um, Normally the program runs the third week of July when we're in person, and this year it's actually going to run virtually, and we're going to be providing free music lessons to anyone who signs up for our online sessions this year. And so I would encourage you, if you're a blind student between the ages of 9 and 21, to log on to Facebook and to go to the MCVI Music Camp for the Visually Impaired page, and we'll be posting information there soon about how to sign up. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I Are there any things in particular that you've had to do to adapt to a virtual delivery? There's a really great documentary that aired last year on AMI that kind of outlines that process. But what I will say is we have virtual games that we play, so we'll play Name That Tune on Zoom. Or we had students actually record for a virtual choir. And so each of them would record their part. We sent out learning tracks. And then Jeff, who's our audio engineer at the camp as well, put it all together to make a beautiful (laughs) choir out of these students from all over the country. Nice. Well, that's great. Well, it's been really interesting. It's been definitely illuminating for me to talk to you, Blair. I feel like your approach goes in so many different directions, but at the same time, it just accounts for the fact that there's just so many different possibilities. So it makes sense to me, right, that you want to look at the community, that you want to look at the, you know, quote, small stuff, that which is really not small stuff at all, like tying shoes or cutting food, all the way up to sports and music and performance arts and everything in between. Um, It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Is there a way that listeners could get in contact with you if they wanted to know more? And so if anyone has any questions or is looking for support in becoming connected with these resources in the community, you can email spry, S-P-R-Y, 2250 
at mylaurier.ca. That's M-Y-L-A-U-R-I-E-R.ca. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much, Blair, and I hope you have a great summer. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, thank you. You too. And with that, that does it for another episode of Living Blind. Thanks for tuning in. I really hope that you enjoyed this interview with Blair Spry as much as I enjoyed doing it for you. For more information about Music Camp for the Visually Impaired, check out the links in the description below. Special thanks to Blair Spry, our producer Jeffrey Rainey, executive producer Deborah Gold, and the entire team at Balance for Blind Adults. If you liked what you heard today, feel free to subscribe or follow us on whatever platform you're listening on. And don't forget to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter by searching Balance for Blind Adults. You can also email the podcast with any comments, questions, or suggestions you may have at livingblindpodcast at balancefba.org. For more information about Balance for Blind Adults and our programs and services, or to access the show notes or the transcription of this episode, please visit us at www.balancefba.org. I'm Naomi Hazlitt, and this has been Living Blind. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Deborah Gold, Executive Director of Balance for Blind Adults. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Living Blind podcast. Our team is so very pleased to bring you these monthly shows focused on the lived experiences and stories of people with sight loss. The podcast is made possible through the generosity of our donors. If you'd like to support this content with a donation, please visit our website at www.balancefba.org. The information about how to donate is also in our show notes. Thanks for listening.